Greetings, podcast listeners. I am Dr. James Cole, and I'm back with another episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. This month marks the one-year anniversary from when the first patient with COVID-19 was admitted to my hospital. But I know that many hospitals out there have been treating COVID patients for even longer than us. Regardless of whether you're a doctor, a nurse, hospital technician, former COVID patient, family member of a former COVID patient, business owner, student, or any other member of our society, you have all been affected by the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus in some way, and all of you have endured some degree of hardship. As of the writing of this podcast, there have been nearly 29 million cases of COVID diagnosed in this country alone, and more than a half million people have died from COVID or COVID-related complications. Death rates are declining as now less than 2% of all of those infected are dying as a result of improved therapies and critical care understanding of this terrible disease. But despite it all, more people have died from COVID than all of the U.S. service members who died in both of our nation's world wars combined. And considering that U.S. involvement in those wars span more than seven years, the number of Americans killed by the COVID virus is really quite staggering. And to once again remind everyone that COVID is not the flu, more people have died from coronavirus infection in the past 12 months than have died from influenza in the past 12 years. Whereas it is true that, that the number of new COVID cases is declining in cities all across the U.S., and whereas the percentage of those tested for COVID-like symptoms diagnosed as positive is significantly improved, we are absolutely positively not yet out of the woods. As I'm sure those of you who still read COVID-related news are aware, there are multiple new COVID variants. Some are homegrown, and some have been brought to our country from the UK, South Africa, and Brazil. And each of them is more troubling than the basic form of the virus most of us have been dealing with. I will get into the details of these new variants shortly, but suffice it to say that these variants do not behave nicely. For example, they spread more easily from person to person and thus our usual so social distancing behaviors and exposure time to one another may not be good enough. As we have seen at least twice now this past year, just as we think we are starting to emerge from the clutches of this virus, another massive wave pushes through and we are once again paralyzed. I am concerned that an additional wave or waves of these new variants may push through the regions of our nation once again, wreaking havoc on our health systems. Thus, be mindful that COVID is not over. Regardless of how many bars and restaurants open up in many regions across the U.S., COVID is still out there and COVID can still take you down. But fortunately, there is hope, real hope, as we have two very effective mRNA COVID vaccines out there being administered all throughout our nation, and the new Johnson & Johnson one-shot vaccine was recently approved for emergency use authorization and is being administered in some regions. The mRNA vaccines are touted as being 95% effective in preventing COVID-19. Yet, they may not be as effective against some of the new variants that are emerging out there. Whereas it's true that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is not as effective when compared to Pfizer and Moderna at preventing COVID-19 infection, if one does still contract the virus, this one-dose vaccine substantially minimizes the severity of the illness and is highly effective in preventing COVID-related hospitalization and death. An added potential benefit to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is that it is supposedly more effective against the emerging variants. And thus, my bottom line up front statement is that any of the proved COVID vaccines are good and anyone should take whatever vaccine they can get. 
Whereas all of our frontline first responders and essential healthcare workers who have been eligible to receive the COVID vaccine should have been doubly vaccinated by either of the two mRNA vaccines by now, the vast majority of our nation has not been immunized. Thus, most of us are still vulnerable to the coronavirus. And even though millions of people have been previously infected with COVID, that's still less than 10% of our population. And don't forget that so-called natural immunity wanes after a period of three to six months. And thus, if you have had COVID, know that you can get COVID once again, thus making it so incredibly important for everyone who is eligible to receive one of the COVID vaccines to get vaccinated. I will discuss the many myths surrounding the COVID vaccines later in this podcast, but let me first mention that the distribution process has been a complicated and monumental task. It will take a lot of time to get everyone vaccinated, but I implore all of you to not be hoodwinked by the conspiracy theorists out there who are passing along harmful disinformation and telling you to not get the vaccine. I will cover this, but know up front that COVID vaccine does not cause infertility. COVID vaccine does not contain a tracking chip. And COVID vaccine is not made in laboratories where aborted human fetuses are gathered up in order to make these products. I am painfully aware of the admonishment some of you are hurling at the healthcare workers who are contacting all of those eligible to receive the vaccine, hoping to get as many shots in arms as possible. There are those who berate our callers, still insisting to them that COVID is a hoax, that healthcare systems are merely trying to get rich off of COVID and now the COVID vaccine, and who angrily refuse the vaccine with harsh and venomous words, which they would likely never repeat to any of their own family members. This sort of behavior is simply unacceptable and frankly shameful. For those out there who continue to perpetuate the falsehoods, the lies, and who berate those in the healthcare industry who have worked so hard to combat this pandemic, I hope that they all remain true to their convictions should they get infected and are among the 5-10% to 10 of those with COVID who will require hospitalization. To those in this category, know that many healthcare workers have been truly scarred by this pandemic, and many of them are now suffering from COVID-related PTSD. To put it bluntly, many have never, never watched so many people die, and many have never before had to deal with so many dead bodies. Many of these same scarred healthcare workers truly hope that the COVID deniers, those who refuse to wear masks, and those who disseminate the poisonous information which makes it so hard to eradicate this disease all simply stay home if they get sick. Many of them hope that those who don't believe in COVID don't suddenly change their minds should they get infected and really sick. But of course, that will be unlikely as even the strongest COVID denier will unlikely be able to tolerate the extreme air hunger one suffers just prior to being placed on a ventilator. Many people still don't want to wear a mask. Many feel that if they have had COVID, that they don't need to abide by the guidance of the CDC. And many feel that social distancing is simply not for them. There are a lot of opinions out there, and that makes it very difficult for people to know what guidance to follow. I will explain all the public health recommendations in a bit, including whether or not you still need to wear a mask and socially distance, even if you have had COVID or the vaccine. But let me say that it is so sad, in my opinion, that so many people still believe what they want to believe about COVID. So many people still do whatever they want, despite all of the evidence out there, and so many remain too selfish to sacrifice even a little during a worldwide global pandemic where two and a half million people have died from just this one disease in just a year's time. To me, this exemplifies the fact that our nation is plagued with healthcare illiteracy. Most people simply do not know much about healthcare. Many people might feel that they know a lot about healthcare, but those same people do not know what they do not know. We likely have not adequately educated our children, our high school and college students, and ourselves in the basics of public health. And where social media is a great platform to, to uh, stay connected with friends and family, 
Using it as a means to acquire all of one's medical knowledge is foolhardy and ridiculous. Whereas I recognize that COVID-related information has changed many times, and even the guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has evolved, know that this is always the case when something overwhelms the nation, or any organization for that matter, on short notice. The same thing happens during war and following a catastrophic natural disaster. Too much happening too fast makes it impossible to sieve and sort through the details quickly. As more is learned, more information gets disseminated, clarified, and is often changed. If the CDC guidance changes, it's because new information has been gathered and analyzed. Expect the guidance to change, but do not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Just because new information or guidance seem to contradict that which was issued previously doesn't mean that it's all worthless. I urge you to listen to the experts. Do not listen to the armchair quarterbacks, to the rogues out there who claim to be experts in healthcare, but do not have any actual relationship with COVID patients, or to the social media influencers who merely want to stoke your fears. Mayors, politicians, lawyers, business owners, sports enthusiasts, and famous entertainers are not healthcare experts. They will all render their opinions, but recognize that whatever they say will at least in part be for purposes of secondary gain. Again, I urge you to listen to the CDC, listen to the scientists, listen to the public health experts who are committing nearly all of their waking hours to unlocking the mysteries of COVID, and listen to the doctors and the nurses who actually treat COVID patients. They are the ones most likely to steer you in the right direction. So where do we start? We must first begin by acknowledging that the COVID pandemic is not yet over. If we give up now and throw in the towel, too many people will get sick from COVID and too many people will die. That is a simple fact. And as I mentioned in a previous podcast when I gave my November COVID update, know that for many people, COVID is not a one-and-done phenomenon. All of those who have contracted COVID and who have recovered are at increased risk of long-term COVID-related complications. Whereas you may feel pretty well now, subtle long-term damage may have occurred, and 10 or 20 years from now, you may, be, you may experience some very unpleasant consequences. Cardiology researchers are now discovering that heart function in some previous COVID patients is worse than would be expected in usual patients their age. Nephrology researchers are seeing laboratory evidence of earlier-than-expected kidney dysfunction in usual patients their age, and it is expected that in several decades there will be more people than usual who experience early-onset COPD and early dementia as a result of past COVID infection. Thus, we should all continue to do our very best to avoid getting COVID in the first place. So what is there to know about all these COVID variants out there, which we're all starting to hear about? There are multiple new variants out there, well over a dozen in fact, including the UK variant, the South African variant, the Brazilian variant, and the one we'll call the New York variant. These are the ones I'm going to specifically discuss. Let's start with the one from the UK. The UK variant, like all variants, has a slightly different genetic sequence than the usual COVID virus. All viruses mutate. That is, when they multiply, they replicate their genetic code and pass it along to the newly created virus. But during the, during the replication process, a tiny mutation may occur in, in that one of the many links of the genetic chain, which needs to form in order to replicate the entire genetic sequence, gets mismatched or misoriented. These tiny genetic errors can be favorable to us, as oftentimes the mutation results in a virus which can no longer replicate or may no longer result in as severe of an infection should we contract that particular viral variant. But if the genetic error results in a more aggressive virus or results in a virus resistant to our previously developed immune defense mechanisms, then that is a problem for us. 
The UK variant is known as the B117 variant and was first detected in England in the fall of 2020. It was identified in the US as early as last December, and the genetic mutation seems to have created a COVID virus which is up to 50% more infective than the usual strain. Whereas this variant does not seem to be more deadly, the fact that it can pass from human to human so much more easily, the sheer increase in COVID-infected patients will ultimately result in more COVID-related deaths. In order to understand how one virus versus another virus causes disease in a population of people, we need to talk about the concept known as the r naught. The r naught is the replication factor of a particular infectious organism and is dependent on three factors. The characteristics of how it infects a person and its natural abilities to do so the predicted number of people an infected person will come in contact with, and the length of time in the life of the organism during which it can infect a person or another host. Once an r naught is calculated for a particular organism, it can be estimated based on various scientific models how many other people will be infected by that particular organism. If the r naught is less than one, in time the virus will burn itself out and the disease will be self-limiting and end. If the r naught equals one, the virus will remain in the population forever at a predictable steady state until it is killed by anti-infective agents prescribed by a doctor. If the r naught is greater than one, it will spread in epidemic proportions and if left untreated, it will eventually infect everyone unless mitigation measures are undertaken, such as mass vaccination. Whereas the r naught in the usual variant of COVID-19 was found to be greater than one, it was accurately predicted that it would eventually become a global pandemic and will never go away until we immunize the vast majority of our population. But this new UK variant has been found to be up to 50% more infective than the usual COVID variant, and thus the r naught is even higher than that of the basic COVID virus that we've been dealing with for the past year. That is quite alarming as the only aspect of an r naught which we as individuals can control is the number of people an infected individual comes in contact with. Recall that I said that three factors determine an infectious organism's r naught the inherent infectivity of the organism, the number of people an infected individual comes in contact with, and the infective period of the organism. If an infected, pre-symptomatic individual comes in contact with too many people, and if the inherent ability of the new variant to infect another person is 50% greater than regular COVID virus, and if many more pre-symptomatic individuals are infecting many more people as a result of this variant's increased infectivity, you can see how a huge surge in the total number of COVID cases can be anticipated unless we remain incredibly vigilant. Fortunately, it seems that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are able to successfully respond to this new UK variant, and we should be immune to this particular variant once we receive both of our vaccines and enough time passes to allow our immune system to develop sufficient antibodies. However, up until 80% of our country is successfully immunized, our population as a whole remains quite vulnerable to this new variant. Infectious disease experts predict that in a very short time, this new UK variant is likely to be the most common form of COVID virus identified in the US. Now, less is known about the South African and the Brazilian variants, in part because they were discovered a bit more recently. The South African variant, known as the B1351, was first detected in Lowest Africa in late 2020, but has since been detected throughout the US. This particular variant shares some of the same mutations as the UK variant, but also has several mutations in the spike protein, which is the uniquely identifiable structure of the COVID virus around which the vaccines have been developed. 
These spike protein mutations are a bit worrisome because both Pfizer and Moderna vaccines may be less effective against the South African version of COVID. However, what little is known about vaccine effectiveness in people who have been exposed to the South African variant seem to show that the vaccines are, in fact, effective. But ongoing study will be needed to verify this over time. At present, there is no clear evidence that this variant is more deadly when compared to the usual COVID virus. The Brazilian variant, known as P1, seems to have enhanced ability to reinfect those who have been previously infected with the coronavirus. Thus, in particular, natural immunity from previous disease is likely not the case if one previously infected comes in contact with this new Brazilian variant. The Brazilian variant also exhibits mutations in its spike protein, also creating concern that the mRNA vaccines may not be as effective. However, those who have been immunized with either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines seem to have increased resistance against this variant, but ongoing research will be necessary over time to determine the long-term effectiveness of these vaccines against this new variant as well. Now, the New York variant, otherwise known as the B1526 variant, likely mutated in the bodies of those with pre-existing severe immunocompromise and is most worrisome because its spike protein variation may make it at least partially resistant to some or all of our COVID vaccines. Scientists are studying all of these new variants very closely and a lot is still unknown, so stay tuned and don't act like COVID is in a rearview mirror. The fact that the r naught of all forms of COVID is greater than one and may live on forever among the population if left unchecked is the prime reason why it is so necessary for everyone who is eligible to get one of the COVID vaccines to get one. Whereas a lot of peanut gallery commentators have been critical of the COVID vaccine rollout, I feel that it's important to point out a few things. First of all, the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines, the vaccines presently available in the largest quantities, are unlike any other and that they need to be stored in ultra-cold freezers, which are not available in most pharmacies, doctors' offices, health departments, and even in most hospitals. A very unique handling process is, re is required so that the vaccines are properly stored, properly thawed, and properly administered in the correct time. This requires a lot of equipment and staff, and under non-pandemic conditions, these simply do not exist. Health departments are usually staffed with a skeleton crew of personnel who deal with a very limited amount of the healthcare needs of an entire community. The vast majority of healthcare is provided by hospitals and clinics not affiliated with the health departments, but these same facilities are not typically staffed to meet pandemic needs. The vaccines are all allocated by the federal government, who allocates shares of the vaccines to each of the state health departments, who then apportion allotments of the vaccines to county health departments. Thus, for the most part, hospitals and clinics are not part of that equation. But county health departments certainly cannot handle the burden of managing all of the state's vaccines, preparing the vaccines, and administering the vaccines. They, of course, need help. And this is why it took a while for the vaccine to roll out to the community, as hospitals have all jumped in with both feet to immunize their frontline healthcare responders. But it has become a much greater burden to identify all the people within the cities, the counties, the regions, and the state which needs a vaccine. It's harder to contact them, to find staff to handle, prepare, and administer the vaccines, and to keep track of all those who have received a vaccine. And the fact that the rate-limiting factor to vaccine administration is the number of actual doses of the, of the available vaccines, a tiered process was needed to prioritize who would get the vaccines first. Whereas it may seem like a relatively simple task to immunize an entire population, and whereas this was done in just a few months' time during the polio pandemic, 
COVID vaccine is very different than polio vaccine for a number of reasons. Immunizing everyone and ensuring that everyone gets a second vaccine within the appropriate time frame is actually a monumental logistical and operational task. But people are getting vaccinated. And in fact, thousands of vaccines have been administered within my hospital system alone without any significant adverse consequences. But because our region and likely every other region within the U.S. only receives so many vaccines at unpredictable intervals based on production and shipping rates, we estimate that it may take the rest of the spring, summer, and perhaps extending into the autumn months before we can get everyone immunized. But even though none of the thousands immunized within my own health system have had any significant side effects of the vaccine requiring hospitalization, there are still a lot of people out there who don't want the vaccine. I have been in one of the call centers where healthcare staff contact hundreds of people each day offering them an appointment to get vaccinated. And I have heard a number of extremely rude and indignant people insult and admonish our callers. Clearly, these misguided individuals have been adversely influenced by the propaganda and the disinformation campaign, which espouses that COVID is in some way, is some sort of a contrived myth that was designed to hurt or take advantage of our own people. How sad it is that these individuals have been so duped by the conspiracy theorists and how sad it will be if these same people who could have been vaccinated get sick and die unnecessarily. Of course, the anti-vaccine crowd is well established and the COVID vaccine is just one more thing for the deniers to refuse. But it certainly does not help the global cause to eradicate this pandemic when there are so many sources of bad information out there and so many ill-contrived theories. So what are some of these conspiratorial claims? The milder ones are those which state that the vaccine is unsafe and that the vaccine could cause disease, but it gets much worse. There are the purported claims that it will cause infertility in women and that manufacturing the vaccine requires an ongoing supply of aborted human fetuses and that a tracking chip will be impregnated into the arms of all who receive a dose. I will address each of these particular unfounded conspiracies, but there are undoubtedly many more which I'm not yet aware of. I apologize ahead of time, but when I talk about the nuances of vaccines and how our bodies react to these vaccines, I will at times be forced to talk in scientific terms to adequately cover the topic. I will do my very best to answer the questions so many people ask in an easy to understand manner, but I recognize that for some in whom science is just not their thing, it may get a bit confusing. So here we go. Question number one, are these vaccines safe? According to experts at Johns Hopkins, so far, none of the vaccine trials have reported any serious safety concerns. Independent safety monitoring boards have evaluated the study data and no serious side effects or serious reactions or consequences have been identified as, uh, as being outside of what would be expected in a large population. Have there been a handful of diseases or disorders which have developed in the tens of thousands of people studied prior to the public release of these vaccines? Yes. But when you look at a similar large population of the same size and you've given them no vaccine or any experimental drug or substance, some of these people develop disease. That is normal. Every day, people are diagnosed with common and uncommon serious disorders. But if the study groups do not develop common and uncommon serious disorders outside of a range that would be expected of a similar, pop, similar population of people not given a vaccine, then those serious common and uncommon disorders cannot be attributed to the vaccine. Some people have experienced severe allergic reactions, but these have been in people who are always at risk for severe allergic reactions. Almost all of them have previously had severe allergic reactions to things such as bee venom or certain foods, and they often carry an EpiPen wherever they go. And thus people who know that they're always at risk of again experiencing a severe allergic reaction should talk to their doctor about whether or not they should get the vaccine. 
Question number two, does the COVID vaccine alter one's DNA? I need to talk about this um, in a bit of detail so that everyone fully understands my answer. The Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines do not alter one's DNA, period. The mRNA in the vaccine codes for your own body's microorganelles, that is, the tiny elements within each of our cells, to create a protein clump, which looks exactly like the main protein spike found in the coronavirus. Once this mirror image protein clump is made, our own body's host defense mechanisms then creates antibodies, which can then recognize and attack the identical looking spike protein found in the actual virus should you breathe in the infectious organism into your lungs. Since the mRNA within the vaccine is rapidly dissolved in your body, since no piece of the actual virus is injected into your body, and since no part of this vaccine enters your actual nucleus, there is no way for this vaccine to alter your DNA. But there's a bit more to say about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which uses different technology to manufacture and employ their product. The J&J vaccine uses a tiny piece of lab-synthesized viral DNA, a specific tiny piece of double-stranded nuclear base pairs, which only codes for the protein clump, which is the same mirror image of the coronavirus spike protein, which the mRNA vaccines code for. The J&J scientists inserted that tiny spike protein DNA into a different, otherwise benign virus called adenovirus, a virus which, in its natural state, causes the common cold. But the adenovirus used to make the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was rendered benign, unable to multiply, unable to cause disease, and is thus harmless. Johnson & Johnson then created a vaccine around this impotent version of adenovirus impregnated with a tiny piece of also harmless DNA. When the J&J vaccine is injected into a person's arm, the harmless version of the adenovirus enters one's cells and is consumed. But in that process, the tiny piece of DNA does enter one's own cell's nucleus, where the injected DNA then codes for the production of the spike protein to render the same type of immune response that we get from the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines. This does not alter one's own DNA, but the additional tiny piece of viral DNA sends our own cells the code to manufacture the uniquely identifiable spike protein, which stimulates our own body's immune system to safely react to actual COVID virus should we become exposed at some time in the future. I understand that what I just said likely sounds really complicated, but please know that none of the COVID vaccine alters your own body's DNA. Question number three, can the COVID vaccine cause one to get the disease? The unequivocal answer is no. Unlike most of the other vaccines, Uh, like we've received over our lives, no actual virus, no dampened down or attenuated form of the actual disease-causing virus, and no killed form of the virus is inserted into your body, and thus these vaccines cannot cause COVID infection, even if you're severely immunocompromised. And although the Johnson & Johnson vaccine does use an impotent version of adenovirus impregnated with a tiny piece of foreign DNA, just like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine cannot cause one to get COVID. Question number four, can the COVID vaccine cause infertility in women? The answer again is no. There is absolutely no evidence that the COVID vaccine could cause infertility. The skepticism likely exists for two reasons. First, a German doctor proposed a theory that because the COVID spike protein shares a tiny resemblance to a protein found in human placenta, that perhaps the same antibodies which attack the COVID virus could also attack the placental tissues and cause infertility issues. However, these are different proteins, and whereas they do share similarities, it would be very unlikely that enough of these similarities exist such that an antibody could recognize both virus and placental tissue. 
But even if it could, and again, there's no evidence that this is the case, identical antibodies form in our own bodies if we contract the actual virus naturally. And thus, we would expect to have seen a huge drop in fertility this past year, considering how many people have contracted COVID. But that is not what we've been seeing. And the second reason why some people believe that COVID vaccine causes infertility is because of a particular movie in which a drug maker obsessed with controlling the population created a vaccine which caused infertility. Of course, it was just a movie and it was all just fiction, but plenty of people out there saw this movie and are perpetuating fears that this storyline is real. Both the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine endorse vaccinating women to prevent COVID and, in fact, do not recommend withholding this vaccine from women who are currently pregnant or who are nursing. They also state, and I quote, While fertility was not specifically studied in the clinical trials of the vaccine, no loss of fertility has been reported among trial participants or among the millions who have received the vaccines since their authorization, and no signs of infertility appeared in animal studies. Loss of fertility is scientifically unlikely. And finally, millions of women have conceived during this pandemic, and many of them previously had COVID. Where social isolation this past 12 months likely decreased the number of opportunities to conceive a baby, and whereas we'll likely see a drop in the number of babies born beginning about nine months from the start of the pandemic and extending until this pandemic is over, it will not be because of the COVID vaccine. Question number five, are the COVID vaccines made from aborted human fetuses? The most honest answer to that question is no. There's absolutely nothing in the COVID vaccine which contains aborted fetal tissue or aborted fetal cells. But the fact that cell lines from an aborted fetus from almost half a century ago is still used in the lab does upset certain people. Vaccines and countless other pharmaceutical products in development are not tested on aborted fetuses, but are tested on fetal cell lines. So what does that mean? A fetal cell line is a group of cells once obtained from previously aborted fetal tissues, which have multiplied in the lab over countless generations and are used to test pharmaceutical products for safety. In the case of the COVID-19 vaccines, fetal cell lines from a woman in the Netherlands who had an elective abortion in 1973 have given rise to the fetal cell line HEK293. This single cell line derived from this one woman's aborted fetus almost 50 years ago is in fact used to test the vaccine in the laboratory, but in no way is used to actually manufacture the vaccine, and no component of that fetal cell line is contained within the COVID vaccines. Question number six, is a tracking chip secretly placed into everyone who receives the vaccine? Absolutely not. None of these vaccines contain a tracking chip. But where did this myth come from? Well, mostly from social media, where most misinformation is disseminated. Whereas it is true that some syringes may contain an RFID tracker on the outside of a vaccine syringe to help track where the vaccine has been shipped and to whom a vaccine has been administered, no sort of tracking device is actually injected into one's body, and nobody can be physically tracked just because they've received the COVID vaccine. Of course, if people are truly concerned about being tracked, then they should probably abandon their cell phones and get rid of any other smart device, as there is tracking technology built into each one of these devices. But if you have no issue with using a cell phone or with any of the other smart technology out there, then know that you can feel infinitely safer getting the COVID vaccine. And finally, question number seven, can the COVID vaccine cause Bell's palsy? Again, the answer is no. But for starters, what is Bell's palsy? Well, Bell's palsy is paralysis of the facial nerve, which almost always develops as a result of a viral infection. 
This results in drooping of the facial muscles on one side of the face, giving the appearance of having suffered a stroke. Most of the time, the condition resolves after a few weeks, but in rare instances can be persistent over a longer period of time. Long before anyone ever heard of COVID, over 40,000 people have been developing uh, Bell's palsy each year in the United States alone, and that translates to about one in every 10,000 people. So why are some people now saying that the COVID vaccine can cause Bell's palsy? It's because among the 30,000 people in the Moderna trial, four of them developed Bell's palsy. Three of them were among those who received the vaccine, and one of the four who developed Bell's palsy was in, was in the placebo group. Of course, we know that over 40,000 people develop Bell's palsy every year, and that's expected. So did those in the vaccine trial who developed this condition fall outside of what can be expected in a population of unvaccinated people? Although a test group of 30,000 is large, it is actually quite small when compared to the entire population of this country. And therefore, it takes statisticians and mathematical experts to crunch the numbers so that we can fully understand if the findings in the vaccine trials are statistically significant or not. And after doing this, it can be concluded that there is no increased statistical risk of developing Bell's palsy following a COVID vaccine when compared to those who did not receive the COVID vaccine. So do not worry that you will develop stroke-like symptoms if you receive one of these vaccines. So now that I've hopefully dispelled all the COVID myths and I've hopefully convinced you that getting the COVID vaccine is safe, what more do you need to know? Well, for starters, the vaccine is not perfect. And although both Pfizer and Moderna quote 95% effectiveness, that still means that 1 in 20 people vaccinated are still susceptible to contract COVID-19. So once a person receives his or her second shot, that does not mean that they're bulletproof. Obviously, the same can be said for those who receive the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, considering that it is only 66 to 75% effective at preventing COVID. People need to act smartly, even after they've received their shot. Second, the vast majority of people out there have not been vaccinated. And even if 100% of the 28 million people out there who had COVID are still immune to the virus, and that's unlikely, then 90% of the U.S. population is still susceptible to contracting COVID-19. Since there certainly are those out there who have contracted COVID more than once, we know that natural immunity does not last. And thus, we need a substantial percentage of our population to get vaccinated so that COVID doesn't continue spreading throughout the United States and the world. Wouldn't it be nice if we could all get back to living our lives as normal, having restaurants, theaters, and sports arenas wide open, being able to have as many people as you want at a wedding without fear of getting sick, being able to travel the world without significant restrictions? Well, we will not get there until the population, until enough of the population has been immunized, and that means that at least three quarters of all people in this country need to get vaccinated. The longer you wait, the longer it takes for this pandemic to end. But I know that so many of you would do just about anything to get a vaccine, but you can't. The problem isn't that there aren't enough vaccinators. The problem is that there isn't enough vaccine. The rate-limiting factor at this time is most definitely how many vials of vaccine show up each week at each county's regional distribution centers. I estimate that at the rate we are all receiving vaccine, it will be August or later until enough people in the U.S. are immunized for us all to be considered relatively safe. So what can we do in the meanwhile? Well, until this pandemic is declared over by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, we must still wear our masks over our mouth and nose, and we must still practice social distancing, and we must still wash our hands as frequently as possible. I know, it sucks. I hate it too. But even if we have been immunized, we must still do this, as none of us know if we are among those on whom the vaccine worked or among those on whom it didn't work. 
And don't forget that with all of these new viral variants, we need to be even more cautious as they are more easily transmissible. Remember that the virus's continued ability to reproduce is dependent on its ability to infect another person before it dies off. And the three factors which influence its ability to reproduce are, one, the infective characteristics of the virus, two, the number of people an infected person will come in contact with, and three, the length of time during which the virus can infect another person. Only when enough people are immunized and the virus can't reproduce in an unimmunized individual will the virus no longer be able to exist. Thus, doing everything we can to keep individuals from spreading the disease and allowing the virus to multiply until most people become relatively resistant to infection through mass immunization remains necessary. In conclusion, whereas more than a half million people have already been killed by this COVID virus, case numbers are starting to decline. The vaccines are out there, and tens of millions of people have been safely vaccinated. But we have at least another 200 million people out there who need to be immunized before we can resume our lives as normal. The vaccine is safe, and nobody can get COVID from this vaccine. These vaccines do not cause infertility, and they are not manufactured from aborted fetuses. Nobody's getting a microchip injected into their body when they get immunized, and the COVID vaccine does not cause Bell's palsy. The conspiracy theories are nothing more than fraudulent disinformation, and everyone who is eligible to receive the vaccine should do so as soon as it becomes available to them. And until the vast majority of us get vaccinated, we will all still have to wear our masks, practice social distancing, and wash our hands. If you want to get back to life as we all once knew it, just get the vaccine. And with that, conclude today's podcast on America's COVID update and vaccine information. This is Healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am Dr. James Cole, and I thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly.